Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And here we are on a Monday afternoon. Yeah, Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah, and uh, we hope that the president will pardon a turkey yeah. and not kill the eight that <laughs> President Obama pardoned. Right, traveling mercies. To show the discontinuity in our administrations, we will actually kill seven turkeys <laughs> instead of pardon one. <laughs> you know, we start being easy on turkeys and... You know, who knows what Turkey happens. was almost our national bird. I didn't know. That's ben, ben Franklin. Benjamin, Benjamin Franklin one day. Yeah. So those of you traveling, traveling mercies for Absolutely. all of you out there. And so some of you may be listening to this while waiting for your train, plane or whatever. So Wednesday night is like the biggest social night. Biggest bar night. Biggest bar night of yep. the year because yep. everybody, everybody's off. And everybody comes home. And everybody comes home. Everybody's off. Yep. Maybe uh, you might see Lindy Night at the Lion Horn Hotel. Very possible. Huh? I love the line. Yeah. Uh, so you said something again on Facebook, made in your sermon. This, you can find this on the Resident Exile website, web Facebook page, or on Bill's personal Facebook page if you are friends with Bill. So you say, I think one of the pressing needs for Christians in this current time is to develop spiritual sobriety. I think most people uh, in this time want to drink heavily. But yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, as I said, spiritual sobriety. Right. Spiritual yeah. sobriety. A sober faith is one that is not in crisis because Christians behave badly and think poorly. A sober hope is not influenced by the twenty-four hour news cycle or declining church attendance. A sober love is one that both channels and models the disinterested and unconditional love of God in Christ for both sinners, saints, and everyone in between. I like how you did that, faith, hope, and love. I don't think I caught that the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I came up, I came up with that myself. I, I think I. Well, it. it's based on the First Thessalonians five, right? Um, uh, lectionary text, and, and actually, Paul does it, puts it in there. You know, he talks about be sober. He's talking about uh, you know being ready and reading the signs at the time, about being prepared for the second coming. Um, but then he gets into talking about how we are to live now. He says we're children of the light, not of the darkness. And then he tells us to be sober and alert. And then he weaves in there faith, hope, and love. And I think to me that uh, just that's what spoke to me as I was working on it this, this, um, <clears throat> this week. Because I think you know, whether you think of those as theological virtues, as Thomas Aquinas did, or these three things will remain, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 13. In many ways, they are the uniquely Christian gifts, approach, um, whether they operate as charisms, gifts, or whether they operate as virtues. In some levels, it's, it's, it's the way we are to approach almost most things as Christians, you know, through the lenses of those three, those three, um, three states, if you would. And, the Thessalonians passage reminds us that vampires cannot be Christian. Ah, right. Children of light. <laughs> I don't like any. I don't like anything where vampires are good, except maybe now this is exception. That we've had this. We've gone through. Blade this. is okay because Blade, first off, is like not purebred, right? I think yeah. he's an he's an inner. He's like inner species, yeah, right, right. And he's sort of like he knows he's he, he's he knows he's got a tragic existence. He's kind of like 
But like the Twilight, when you have like these masses of good, there's not, they're not children of light. They can't what, be by that, nature. Wasn't there that one like kind of good vampire the Buffy series? Buffy. Angel. And it's again Angel. Yeah. Barb- Angel. We've done, we've had this discussion. Yeah. Before. Barb- I do like Sentinel now. I feel hypocritical because I kind of like the Angel. The other thing trouble is, well, you can't baptize a vampire. You can't. No. You can't. <laughs> it works out badly for it's the impossible. vampire. So there yeah. you go. So, but if, you know, if you're Baptist faith, it doesn't really matter if you could, you know, it. It's not really a sacrifice. I feel somehow better about werewolves. Like, I, I, I find them, they're just kind of like the Incredible Hulk. You know, they kind of, yeah, I like werewolves. Yeah, there we go. I oh, like good. werewolves. Good. That's exactly where I was going with my <laughs> just, I'm, just saying, I'm just saying. I want to put it out there. That's yeah. the sober faith takes seriously the fact that we can't, you know, put lipstick on a pig. You can't rehabilitate the vampire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's a great song out right now about if we were vampires. It's a great, oh, yeah, it's, it's a good song. song. Yep, yep. But you not, introduced me to that song. It's not talking about literal vampires. No, yeah. that's good. That's good because yeah. we have to correct it. So yeah, I, I think this is. I I I think this is good in time. You know, it's really interesting. Um, David French's piece. Uh, he was on Give and Take last week. He wrote this thing about Roy Moore and the rise of creepy Christianity. But he said there's two kind of temptations for modern Christianity on the West. One is sort of a is the accommodationist tendency to sort of water down the faith for a kind of cultural relevancy and really take away the particularity and the mystery away from it. It says the other one is to present faith um, not as something that is comfort and anxiety, but that will get dispel and get rid of it through control. And if you just like, you know, one of the examples is like parenting, right? Like parenting is pretty stressful. A kid, you know, like it's finite, fragile, develops whatever way a child right. would develop. He says, but there's all these books that if you just do these seven things, you'll right. come out and raise the perfect Christian kid. And he thinks that it becomes this kind of, you know, this sort of uh, control anxiety measure kind of Christianity leads to these kind of controlling figures. And, yeah. and, 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 the, and so I think that that I, I resonated I, as, I, as I read your quote, I was thinking about that piece because it's, it's, because the kind of faith you're talking about doesn't make false promises right. about about struggle, about anxiety, about complexity, about pain, about evil. It doesn't. It doesn't sort. Of, it doesn't dispel that. It's a comfort in those things. Right. And and and, and I, I would guess would say that these things, even these, can be places where you experience the presence of God. Well, yeah. For instance, uh, there was a post going on around. Uh, uh, on one of the Baptist sites, one of the progressive Baptist sites about the death of American Christianity. <laughs> and, I, and I mean, if, uh, I, I don't think Roy Moore uh, is going to kill Christianity if the wholesale endorsement of slavery, for instance. He or, might kill sales of leather vests. Yeah, uh, good be. <laughs> leather vests and cowboy hats, no, but, that might go out of style. But the whole point, you know, the fact of Christians thinking badly, for instance, uh, <clears throat> If that was a criteria for the health of Christianity, then Christianity would have been – it would have never made it out of the first century, you know. So I, I think there's a sense where a sober faith realize, doesn't doesn't get caught too much – doesn't really get caught up too much in both the critiques within as well as the compromises um, – you know, the critiques without and the compromises within the Christian faith because there's a sense where um, the compromises are always there and – there's always valid and invalid critiques of Christianity, you know, throughout the history. We're always kind of we're consistently understood and misunderstood as a faith, and sometimes we bring that up on ourselves too. That's probably you know that's we do that. Yeah. 
By the way, I hear the hounds coming. The hounds are coming. My phone that's is... Bill, that's Bill's phone ring. I don't know if you'll actually hear that. In the yeah, it's kind of a nice background. It, is nice it feels like... Uh, Release the hounds. It feels like we're, feels like we're in a uh, yeah, British period drama. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that... that yeah, I think you're right that Christianity, a bad idea here or there, is not going to end the faith. You know, the other thing that I was thinking of as I read your piece was, there are a couple of things I was thinking. One was Leslie Newbigin's book, Proper Confidence, which I think was the last book he wrote. That guy was writing, his first book came out in like, I don't know, like the like 1940-ish or something, something, like something crazy like that. And he was writing into like the 90s. Like That's a, pretty amazing. Like that 90, his, it's a, basically a book on... I think the subtitle is like faith, doubt, faith and doubt and modernity and Christian discipleship. But basically it's his epistemic kind of approach. It's a fantastic little book, short, but he talks about this sort of, um, the 10, the, the virtues of liberalism and, and what he calls kind of a conservative evangelical or slash fun. He's actually saying, I think you might even use the word fundamentalism or something. He says, what you, you, what you appreciate about fundamentalism is its conviction. Like, it, it, you know, the, it won't be nickel and dime to the death. It, it, it says, what, you're, you, what you appreciate about liberalism is its openness, its, its, its willingness to mm-hmm. develop. And he says, you know, that, that there's something about each of those that we want. We want a sort of bold humility or humble boldness that, it, but the problem is either end of the spectrum trades one for the other. And, and, and then he thinks that, and he, he basically starts out in the beginning of the book saying certainty is sort of the the enemy of of faith, and and it's unrealistic. He thinks in modern life, like we right. don't, um, and and se- and the quest for it creates all sorts of false right. intellectual dilemmas and all kinds of anxiety and, and things like that. But I think that that the kind of serious sober faith you're talking about seems to me is what he's talking about. Something that that really is principled conviction, and yet really understands it's always on the way and has an openness yeah. about it. Yeah, I think certainty almost always leads to. Uh, you know, uh, sport, you know, the uh, dead end evolutionary line, you know, you know, that's one, that's one definition of the word sport where you will either, you'll either have an inquisition. Okay. And you'll go, you'll put people in heresy trials. The inquisition <laughs> is here to stay. <laughs> or you'll put yourself into a box that will eventually, you know, there will be nothing, you know, you will go extinct because there's nothing that's going to be feeding that. And I think, but I, you know, the temptation for certainty, I mean, it's why I think um, it's funny, you know, uh, pretty consistently in the Hebrew scriptures, the uh, fortune telling seers are condemned. And, uh, and of course, one of the, you know, if you want to write a good, you know, best selling book in Christianity, you write one about telling when Jesus is coming back, you know. And, but I do think that anxiety about the future uh, is something that the answer to that is not trying to read the signs of the time. The answer to that is faith. And that's part of why we were not, uh, we were never encouraged to try to, 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 uh, to, to go to people who offered you uh, insight and things we're just not supposed to know. I think the other, that, and that ties into me about hope. I mean, because to me, hope is not positive thinking. Christian hope is not, uh, you know, um, pep talks. It's not claim it, name it. You know, it's hope in the good that God will do. It's hope in the coming triumph of God and realizing that um, there are a lot of bad days between the coming triumph of God. And, and, yeah, and I think uh, hope is not temperamental, right? I mean, optimism and pessimism are temperamental, right? You could be— You can talk yourself into that. Uh, yeah, and just I just think there are people that are more optimistic by nature and people that are more 
pessimistic by nature. It's very right. interesting in that book uh, in, um, uh, what's the guy? Uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, Tiverse, Kahneman, Danny Kahneman. He talks about like, well, pessimism is good on one level because it makes you a better critical thinker, but studies show optimists live longer. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but that's a, te- you could be a really hopeful optimist or a really hopeful pessimist. Cause I think yeah. that, that optimism and pessimism are things that see strictly along a certain kind of anthropological lines, right. what's possible on the plane of existence. Whereas hope is something different than that and, yeah. and often emerges from dark places, but it's, it's not peppy. Yeah. Right. It's not, it's not a, it's not sort of half empty, half full. It transcends that. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm taking a Bible study through the book of Revelation, verse by verse right now. And one of the things that— As opposed to every other verse. Every other verse. <laughs> just odds, just evens. Yeah, you're better <laughs> off if you just go every— Just go even. Yeah, it's kind of—I mean, I, I, you understand why people skip through it and just make the chart. Yeah, that's I know, not, yeah. Let's not read the details. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Charlotte Donlin, Stephen Rowe, Andrew Stravitz, Jim Kress, and Liam O'Brien. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. But... There is this kind of the, in some levels, the thread through the first part of Revelation is an answer to the martyrs waiting to be vindicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this idea of when will things be made right. And uh, so I think that's the sense of, you know, I think that this, again, back where church history gives you a certain kind of perspective. Um, The fact that there's radical decline going on in a lot of of circles in American Christianity, almost all of them, actually— you know, I think we need to own what is our responsibility, but um, my, my being around people who have answers, you know, I, you were, you know, I joked the other day because you started saying someone was talking about something cutting edge. And that's usually when I hear cutting edge, that's usually, yeah. you lose me usually at that. Yeah. yeah. I don't usually hear anything else you say, but, um, you know, I think. I have no problem with it. I know you don't. I know. None at all. <laughs> but the, But I think the fact is, uh, there are some things that are in our control about what's going on right now in the decline of church attendance. I think what's probably harder for people to to, to hold on to are the things that aren't. And um, we're looking for someone to blame, um, previous generation, worship styles, things like that. But, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about this analogy, one of the reasons Islam eventually 
took over a lot of what was one-time Christian places was just attrition. You know, marriages, business deals, um, Christians got tired of paying the tax they had to pay. And I think, you know, there's a sense where— Christians will receive a tremendous tax cut. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, has there ever been a policy that so many people have supported that is so bad for them? You know, you think in terms of these tax cuts. I mean, it's just amazing. The people, the way that put this group of people in power, the vast majority of them will not, will be hurt by these tax cuts. It's just fascinating to me. Yeah, a tax policy fascinates me. Yeah, anyway. anyway. But no, so I think there's a sense where, what do you do? I mean, what do you do in the face of, of, um, when all the trends are kind of going against you? Uh, But And, And it's interesting too, historically, like, the highest time for church attendance in the history of the country was the early 1960s. I mean, I, I think yeah. we, I, th- I think we imagine that like in like the 19th century or something, everyone was in church or the 18th. No. I mean, that's just not the case. So, I mean, the decline is relative to a fairly recent high point. Right. We're still, I think we're still, our average is still above what it was during the Revolutionary War time. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, oh I'm sure. I mean, Way by much, yeah, yeah by much significant, a, yeah, a significant, significant margin, yeah, yeah, significant margin. So I do think hope is is something that's not based on, you know, short term statistics. Again, I, I frankly, I spend a lot of my time trying to help churches figure out how do we, you know, how do we not decline? How do we have a, a mission and ministry future? But um, I think hope has really nothing to do with the temporal results of my life or my ministry. I completely concur. And then I, I think to me, when you know, when I was trying to think about what a sober love is, I mean, I think um, for me, I get a lot of, of what I've learned about love. It I means love. no beer goggles. <laughs> yeah, that's probably, there's a lot. There, yeah, there will, there will be, an, this will not be the kind of love that's experienced by many on Wednesday night before Thanksgiving yeah. in America. You know, one of, I think one of my strengths and my weaknesses has always been, I do see people's potentials. And um, and sometimes that helps me or help them and encourage them to live up to their strengths. You know, as a parent, my uh, biggest weakness is kryptonite. Yeah, just for the oh, you let you let it out. Who you really are now? <laughs> uh, there you go. You're Superman. Exactly. There you go. Exactly. Um, but I do think there's a sense where um, you know love really discovers itself in in those times when. There's not a lot of uh, it's not it's not fun to love. In other words, it's a difficult love, but also it's a realistic love. I mean, I think you know. To me, I've I've um, I think my best days as a parent were the days that my kids needed me on their worst days, and giving them a certainty that their love, my love for them, and God's love for them was something that was bigger than what they were going through. I think. And certainly that's been the hope that I've held on to as well in times in my life. So I think, you know, we don't, uh, we don't uh, get distracted by the glittering image or the shiny objects that our love is based on. Uh, as, as Bonhoeffer said in, um, in Life Together, I think it's in Life Together, where the true Christian love is the Christ in me loving the Christ in the other. It's not based on what that person gives me. That's the or what I feel, or what actually, you know, um, it's, it's, it's nothing, it's disinterested, I think the term I used, uh, which is a good Augustinian idea, that my love is not based or not interested in what you can do or cannot do for me, 
but just on the fact that you're a creature created in the image of God and recreated through Christ. Yeah, and I mean, I was thinking, too, of Halik's notion of patience, like patience with God, that book, and he talks about the difference between fundamentalism and atheism. Are there two forms of impatient faith? Mm-hmm. And that a patient faith has a capacity for mystery. And then he has that great ellipsis by a, a, an Egyptian layperson, uh, Adele Bestavaros, in the beginning of that book, he says, patience with others is love. Patience with self is hope, and patience with God is faith. So I don't know, maybe another word, another synonym for the kind of faith you're talking about is 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 patience. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a powerful idea, uh, and of course he he weaves that through his own trilogy of faith, hope, and love. Um, you know, I'm working on this chapter right now in the history of anti-Semitism, and one of the things <laughs> I know. it's like a lifetime special. Yeah, <laughs> anti-Semitism. Yeah, no. By the way, it's really interesting. All my, none of my jokes are in good taste. I can't see they had the, They had this guy in Unorthodox. I totally want to read this book. He he wrote like a, a history, like a book about like Yiddish newspapers and like Eastern Europe. Uh-huh. And they, they would cover all of these like crazy things that were like European Jews were doing. And, and, and he's like, well, you know, it's so interesting. We just don't see that class here in America. And he's like, yeah, well, you don't have this like land, like all these poor Jews. Like you did some of, he said, you have it in Israel now, but you don't have. And they were talking about like, well, what? We all like have this sense of like the successful pedigree and like, but if the, if the stuff you're writing about all these uh, like Jews in Eastern Europe, these like you talk about, you know, guy, they you know, drug dealers and pimps and hoes. Nobody nobody says Bubby used to turn tricks. Right, <laughs> Mark, right. Mark, Mark, that was Mark's point. Like we don't celebrate our criminal past, to which my friend Liel says, "Speak for yourself." Because right. <laughs> his, his dad was a bank robber. Right. No. But it's interesting. They said also that they were really into wrestling, like these oh, the yeah, Hasidim. Yeah. And so, like, if the if if uh, the, if the Jewish wrestler was losing, the Hasidim would all stand up and start chanting psalms. Yeah, <laughs> it's so awesome. No, no. Well, and and that whole kind of. Um, a lot of that whole kind of ordinary life was wiped out in the show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, ordinary, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, one of the things, and and, and again, I, I uh, haven't totally come out where I'm going to come. I don't know exactly how I'm going to say this, but I do think there's something. <laughs> I, you are going to say Christian anti-Semitism, bad, right? Bad. So you're going to come out against it. The question is, is Christianity inherently anti-Semitic is the other, is the, Question. I don't know that the people asking me to write this chapter would like that idea. But part of it is the fact that early on, Christians and Jews were in competition. And part of, if you would, some of the early attitudes of anti-Semitism within Christians was born out of the anxiety of the fact that they didn't accept Christ as their Messiah. And there's a sense where the whole basis of the legitimacy of our religion is based on the fact that Jesus was the Messiah of God, the Savior of the world. And I still think a lot of times in certain fundamentalist expressions and certain evangelical expressions, I'm not quite as prepared to make the difference between those two as some of our colleagues are, but that's okay. Uh, I'm comfortable with it. You're comfortable with it. That's fine. Yeah, I, was, I, I told you, in 1968, I'm comfortable with it. Maybe 1974. <laughs> it's not so much in 2017, but anyway. But this kind of insecurity about, uh, you know, we see it with the creation, six-day creationist people where they – they, you know, put all the chips in, you know, defense of the faith based on a particular uh, idiosyncratic reading of the book of Genesis, you know, or, you know, it was maybe the virgin birth in a, in, a, in a previous time. But this idea where 
a sober faith, hope, and love doesn't doesn't let the anxieties of those who disagree with us make us make bad on Christian moves. I think a lot. I mean, there's something there's something uh, you know spiritually schizophrenic for a Christian to be anti-Semitic, given that our Lord and our entire Bible was written by Jewish people. You know, our Lord was Jewish. The mother of God, Mary, was Jewish. Yet, um, it's something that not only has existed throughout the ages, but it's alive and well today. And sometimes, frequently, uh, there are several several uh, very different kinds of pockets of this anti-Semitism, some in the extreme right, the alt-right, and some also in the extreme left. So it's something that um, I think when, you're anxi- when you let your anxieties, you talk about this all the time, when you let your anxieties dictate your relationships or when you let your anxieties, maybe the ones you're not even aware of, start shaping your theology, that moves you away from faith, hope, and love, which brings us back. That's a lot of what Halleck talks about. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So there you go. I hope that we have, uh, you know, that, that I, I pray that there's a resurgence of this kind of faith. Yeah, I think it's, we, um, you know, to me, the other thing is, um, we need to get out of the job of defending the faith and back into the job of living and sharing it uh, and and giving a cup of waters to those who might be Jesus in our midst. I think um, it's, you know, you can make mistakes when you're trying to serve others, um, but boy, those, those mistakes made in love are a lot less hard to cover up than those made out of anxiety and fear. Yeah, and I think that like faith, it, it is better described than defended in the sense of yes. like when when it, when there's a rich picture of it, uh, described, told, narrated, borne witness to, that's much more compelling than a kind of defensive uh, kind of posture. Because the, the defensive posture always, I mean, people, it's, I mean, when somebody has a defensive posture, it makes you defensive. I mean, in any yeah, kind of interaction. Yeah, it makes you, yeah, it just makes you feel that way. I, you know, I've told this story before. It's one of my kind of shaping stories of my life. But, um, you know, I, I won't go through all the details of it, but I was working with urban kids, uh, one of the toughest kids I ever worked with, John Paul. And, uh, you know, after that one not night. The Pope, not the Pope. Not the Pope. No, no, this kid from. From the projects, and I was going to say, yeah, you're, you're, everybody you're was afraid of him. Everybody was afraid of him, including teachers and police and everybody. And um, I had him; he was at Young Life Camp with me. And after the crosstalk, I asked him what he thought of it because he had, he was out; he wouldn't come into the cabin. And I could tell that there was like there was almost, I mean, this is a tough guy, and there was kind of tears in his eyes. And I said, "What'd you think of the talk?" He goes, "It's bullshit." I go, "Okay, uh, why did he say that?" He goes. How in the world can I believe there's a God that loves me when no one in this world has ever loved me? Mm. Mm. And, you know, and I said, I know. That. Well, that's a, that's a good point, John Paul. Um, and then, you know, I let, we were quiet there in the dark for a while. And I go, well, you know, you know, I love you. And uh, that's when the conversation ended. But um, I think that that was the only response to that. Uh, he didn't need Bible verses, and the fact is, as imperfect as it was, I did, I did love him and love those kids, and um, that was a counter. That was a counter argument to what most of his life had taught him about God and the universe. Saint Teresa de Lisieux says, "For the love of God, 
I accept even the strangest thoughts. Hmm. Amen. Amen. Oh, why you look so sad? The tears are in your eyes. Come on and come to me. Shame to cry. Let me see you through. Cause I've seen the dark side too. When the night falls on you, you don't know what to do. Nothing you confess could make me love you less. I'll stand by you. I'll stand by you. Talk to me.